one of the things you guys have heard of over and over, there's no instant gratification. Things take time to grow properly. So the shear that we're about to have has been in the makings for a few years. Because every time Rabbi Weinreb is in the country, he's not available, or it's Ben Azmanim, and we've been talking about this. Uh, he did speak many years ago in the yeshiva, but uh, it's, uh, we're really honored to have him back. Rabbi Weinreb was a Choshev Arov in Baltimore. Many of our alumni davened in his shul um, many, many years ago, and then he took a major position in the OU and moved out of Baltimore. Um, he, say, he wears two, uh, now, well, three hats. He's a Choshev Arov, and all of the things that being a shul rabbi with a very diverse community means. Um, he is a very uh, well, well-known well psychologist, therapist, and he's a major player in the OU. Um, all three hats. And we're very honored that uh, Rabbi Weiner is going to share some inspirational ideas on tshuva, which is really one of the most difficult. Rav Cook says tshuva is the easiest mitzvah and the most difficult mitzvah. We see in the Gemara in Kedushin, Right, that Haryat Mekudesh Ali Amanach and Itzadik Choshesh in Likedusha, because Shema Hirher Tshuva Belibo. So he could turn from a Russia to a Tzadik through Hirher Tshuva. Rav Kook says, You see how easy Tshuva is. And when you read the Rambam, it's the hardest mitzvah to fill p- properly. And along the way, we have all kinds of emotional and psychological issues that we need to deal with. And we're looking forward to hearing Wine Rabbi's ideas. Thank you very much, uh, Rabbi Galinsky, for the opportunity. Uh, among the uh, obstacles that we faced over the past two years of scheduling was COVID. I couldn't even get into the country for two years. So that was an obstacle. And, and as far as the various hats that I wear, um, those three hats are there in some place, but the main hat that I have these days is as a Eltezeda, as a great-grandfather. Baruch Hashem, I... Almost all of my grandchildren are married and have children, and we have great-grandchildren, and we're expecting some of them to come in from America uh, tomorrow, I guess, tomorrow morning. That's a big hat, favorite hat. Um, I'd like to speak to you about Busha. Busha is usually translated as shame. Shame, the English word shame, S-H-A-M-E, shame or embarrassment. And I'd like to begin, uh, where else can one begin? It's one of the best places to begin any discussion about tshuva, and that is with the work of the Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah was one of the great Rishonim, lived in the uh, 13th century in Spain, and he wrote a masterwork on, on the whole concept of tshuva. It's known as Sha'are Tshuva, the Gates of Tshuva. In the first chapter of the, the Sefer Sha'are Tshuva, he lists 20 components of tshuva. Talk about difficulty. So other Rishonim speak of three major uh, components of tshuva. Uh, regret, charota, uh, ha'ovar, being remorseful about the past, uh, making a commitment to the future. Uh, Ranyona concludes those in his list of components, but he has uh, a total of 20. We'll look at one of them, perhaps two of them today. He begins by saying as follows, Ho'ikur hashishi, 
the sixth ikar, the sixth major principle, I use the term component of tshuva, is habusha, is to be embarrassed, to be ashamed. Shenema, the pasuk in Yirmiyo, boshti v'gam nichlamti ki nososi cherpas ne'uroi. I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, because I still bear the burden of the shame of my youth. So he was felt guilty about the sins of his youth. Not sure what those sins were, but they, they stayed with him, obviously, lifelong. So the continues, and he's embarrassed. You know, if you live in a community, you're ashamed of what the community thinks of you. And if you do something against that community's norms, well, naturally you're going to feel ashamed. That should be a natural emotion. There are many words in, in Lushen Kodesh in Hebrew for shame. Just in the Pesach that we just quoted from Yemiyo, you have Busha and Kalima and Cherpa. <laughs> There's three different terms. And it's hard to really find English equivalents for all these three. But certainly a, a normal person will feel ashamed if he does something, transgresses against whatever the norms of the community are. It's not a Jewish religious uh, emotion. It's emotion that Rabbi Yonah assumes it's true of all human beings. You know, you want to be thought well of, and if people see that you're not uh, conforming one way or the other, you're going to feel ashamed. So, how can a person not be ashamed of going against God? You know? The reason why we don't automatically feel shame when we sin in a religious sense, is because God is far from us. So, you know, we, our neighbors are close to us. They see what we're doing. They disapprove. They let us know. And so we feel ashamed. Uh, but God is so far from us that we, we, we're not even aware sometimes that he's right there watching us. That's why people are embarrassed from, from other creatures, other humans, but not embarrassed from the Creator, Yisbora. And he quotes a famous Gemara, Sechus Brachos of Chavches and Beis, Kibishas Petiras Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakkai. Here's Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakkai, the great Tana, one of the, from a historical point of view, one of the most important Jews in Jewish history. Ben Yochanan Ben Zakkai at the time of the second destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Uh, met with the general or perhaps the future Caesar of um, the Roman Empire and uh, he was given uh, three wishes <laughs> and he wished for three three things the main one was he wished for Yavne B'chachomel he wished that there should be a Shiva in Yavne and that, that should have continuity and that shouldn't be harmed by the Roman Empire and he had some others kind of small wishes and of course, the general 
kept those wishes. The general was afraid that, hey, maybe one of the wishes will be go back home to Rome. <laughs> you know, spare the base of Migdash. Don't, uh, don't besiege Jerusalem anymore. But that wasn't his choice. The Gemara mentions that some say in the name of Rabbi Akiva of all people, and some attribute it to an Amoru, to uh, one of the Amoroim, who wondered why did Yachanu and Zakai, if he had three wishes, why didn't he wish for something of national significance? <laughs> why did he just wish for a little yeshiva to be built? But Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai had the foresight to understand that when you offered three wishes, you know, you, you better ask for things which you're going to get. Because if you're not going to get them, uh, then you you blew the wish, you know, you had three chances and one of them is not going to take place. And he realized that the future needed not Beis Amigdash at that time. Beis Amigdash was lost, it was lost. But a yeshiva would perpetuate the Torah, would perpetuate the religion, and that became the basis of our success, of our existence for the next uh, almost 2,000 years. The fact that he had a yeshiva, and from that yeshiva, of course, so much grew, etc. But at that time, he's on his deathbed, and the dialogue between his students and him is fascinating from many points of view. One of the things they asked him is for a blessing. Here is their Rebbe, their master of Yochanan and Zakkai, and he's on his deathbed. So they said to him, Rabbeinu Borcheinu, give us a bracha. So again, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai surprised them with the bracha he gave them. He's always surprising people. Roman generals, he was surprising. Now he's surprising his Talmudim. He said, That your fear of heaven should be at least equal to your fear of what people will say. What mortals, flesh and blood people will say. No, so he's giving him a bracha that should be Reshemayim, God-fearing people. And he says, at least you should be as afraid of them as you are of what your neighbor's going to say about you. <laughs> so they were shocked, just like the Roman general was shocked. Amrulo, they said to him, Rabbeinu, Atkan, that's it? That's all you're going to do? Give us a, giving us a bracha on your deathbed, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai? And that's it. Below Yoser, you're not going to wish us, oh, you should have Yerah Shemayim, Mama, you should have Kavona, and every Shemona Esfrei for the rest of your life, or something like that. No. So he said to them, Amalahem, Halavai, I wish this, this bracha would be fit, would, would, would work, would be would become true. Teidu, proof of this, he said, Sharei Adam over Avero Baseser, many times, People do sins in secret or in private. Viomer, and they say to themselves, Lo yirani adam. No one's going to see. No one's going to see. In other words, the power of busha, of shame, is so great that Rabbi Yochanan I wish that we would at least have the same fear, the same uh, caution that we have in the presence of other people who are judging us uh, as uh, we should have that level of fear of God, uh, at least that much, that we should hesitate before we do something wrong and think, oh, I better be ashamed. And God sees me. God knows. This is the, the power of Busha. And, and he goes on to elaborate 
uh, the power of busha and the importance of overcoming busha. And he gives a prescription of how can one obtain this busha, this capacity for shame, in, in, a, in a constructive way. I mean, shame could be a negative factor. It can stop you from doing good things because I'm ashamed to do this, you know. They ask you to, uh, you know, teach uh, other people Torah and you say, ah, me, you know, I'm not, I'm not at that point yet. I'm ashamed to do that. But we're talking about Busha in a, in a, in a constructive way. So Ben suggests, the way to achieve this level of, of shame in a positive way is Behispodeid lachshov begdulas Hashem. Behispodeid means hispodedus means to to go off somewhere in private, reflect alone, go off somewhere in the woods, near the near the ocean, or somewhere, and reflect, contemplate, contemplate the greatness of God. The more you convince yourself of the greatness of God, the more ashamed you're going to be to act against God's will. Because you know he's he's ever present. He sees what you're doing. And that's one thing to contemplate. And also to contemplate Think of how terrible it is to rebel against what God wants. And that's uh, to realize Hashem God sees his actions. Yosov and uh, examines, tests out his kidneys because Chazal, the kidneys were the source of Eitzah, of wisdom, of good counsel. God observes even his thoughts. So this is a quick take. I just excerpted parts of the uh, what Rabbi Yonah says in what he calls the Ikor, <coughs> the main principle, the sixth main principle of his principles about you. So. Rabbi Galinsky mentioned uh, among my hats was my career. Just I closed down that career a long time ago. Um, looking around the room, very long time ago, and you were all very young, um, and switched to a different career. Um, but still, I keep up to some extent with this career. But I found that something is true of books, especially secular books in general. And that is, they go out of style. You have a book that was, you know, when I was in graduate school, this was the book that everybody read. This was going to solve all human problems. <laughs> and, you know, a few years went by. And now I, I speak to people in training in the, in the mental health field. They never even heard <laughs> of the author of the great psychologist who had every problem solved. But I, I was... Fortunate to have had a, a, a seminar, uh, like a workshop type thing, long ago, actually, it's very long ago, from a woman, I doubt very much if she's still alive, maybe. Her name was Helen Merrill Lind, L Y N D. And she wrote a book entitled On Shame and the Quest for Identity. And she was very much onto something, which since has become almost trite, but it's a very, very important insight. can't summarize her whole book. It's an interesting book. It's very well written. Um, but she made a distinction between shame and guilt. Between shame and guilt. And the distinction, 
I'm simplifying it, not as eloquent as she. But guilt, she writes, is when a person does something wrong. Whatever it is, he passed a red light, he stole some money, whatever it is, or in a religious context, uh, ate something you shouldn't have eaten, or you spoke something you shouldn't have spoken. So you, you feel guilty because you did something wrong. You did something wrong. And that is itself a very, very important psychological concept. One wonders sometimes how many people still have <laughs> this emotion of guilt. I did something wrong. Oh, that's bad. I shouldn't do that again. Uh, but she felt, too, that this was a human uh, reaction, guilt. Shame, she said, is not when you did something wrong. It is occurs when you aren't whom you pretend to be. You think you're a, oh, I am a, whatever, an up, upright person and I never insult anyone and I respect all human beings, etc., etc. And then you're caught denigrating another person. So it's not that you did something wrong. It's that you're not whom you thought you were or whom people think you are. People think you're this and you're not. So it's, it's, it's something that has to do not with your behavior, but with your identity. Identity now is a much bigger word than it was back when she wrote and when I was a student in graduate, in graduate school. Identity is who you are. One can say, uh, I was uh, once had the privilege of being in a uh, panel discussion together with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zechron uh, Alevrocha. So someone asked him, what's the most important question that you're ever asked? And he answered, Rabbi, do you remember me? <laughs> so, and I, uh, I think it's very humorous, but also very, very insightful. And really what people wanted to, people want to be recognized. And uh, you come over to somebody like Rabbi Sachs, he, you know, he met hundreds, thousands of people. You want to know if he remembers you, you know, you want to know if you're recognized. I had a different response to that in that discussion. That is the most important question a human being can ask of himself or herself is, who am I? Who am I? And it's not so easy to define. And some feel that the, the, the definition of adolescence is a time of life when the person struggles with this question, who am I? Am I going to be the good son of my parents or I am going to strike out in a different direction this way or that way? But one defines who am I. In more recent times, more modern times, that question is asked way past adolescence. I know people who are quite old and they're still asking themselves the question, who am I? Uh, my children, who now are, I mentioned, already themselves mostly grandparents, but when they were young and I was switching careers from a teacher, uh, I was a Rebbe in a high school for a few years, and then I went to graduate school, and then I was an intern, then I was a psychologist, then I became a rabbi, and then the, and they used to tease me and say, Daddy, what are you going to be when you grow up? <laughs> you know? What are you going to be when you grow up? But that's part of the definition of who, who am I. And, and one changes, of course, throughout the course of one's life. It's only natural, but at any one point in time, you are who you are. And if suddenly you're shown up to be an imposter, and, that, and that's a key word, imposter, that, that brings shame. You're exposed. You, know, you pretended to be this and that and the other thing. There's a fellow running for congressman or something in some Midwestern state in the United States just now. 
he got the nomination from his party to run for the Senate or for Congress because he was a military hero. He said he served in Afghanistan, he served in Iraq, and you know, and he, that was part of who he was. And at some level, it sounds a little crazy, but at some level he believed it. And then, of course, the opponent did some research and found out that he never served in the military. And, <laughs> and now, of course, this is the big headline. You know, to be discovered as an imposter. Now, I don't know this fellow. I can't remember his name offhand. It's in the news in a few, a few, few weeks. But um, he's an imposter. And, and the natural response to being discovered, to being exposed, is shame. Is shame. So, at, at this time of year, this is really the third day of Aseris Shemei Tshuva, um, we have to kind of think ourselves in what way need we be ashamed in what way are we quite not what we pretend to be we all have a persona uh, uh, the way we present ourselves to the world and uh, in some way we fall short of that persona sometimes in small ways sometimes in big ways but uh, that experience of Busha is what Rabbi Yon is saying we need to, to face we need to face there's a text in Rav Kook's Siddha, in Olasra'iyah, which I've heard several people explain part one of this text. I haven't heard publicly anyone really focus on the second part of it. We're about to start saying the Tfilov, and it's called saying it the Erev Yom Kippur, toward the end of Shemona Esrei. And we're going to say this Tfilov. Elokai. My God, before I was formed, before I was created, before I was born, any could die. I, I wasn't fit. I wasn't. I had no merit. I wasn't even born. I was nothing. Now that I have been formed, now that I'm born and I'm here, and I'm 15 years old, or 25 years old, or 65 years old, Achshav. This is the vidu, part of the vidu of, uh, of Yom Kippur. Be'achshav now shenotzarti harayani lefonecha after shenotzarti keilu lo notzarti. It's as if I have not been formed at all. It's as if I didn't exist. So I, I had the privilege once. I had pleasure several times for Hashem of hearing. I wasn't a student of Rav Salavechik, but I went to various of his lectures and shiurim. And uh, to my knowledge, he rarely, very rarely quoted Rav Kook. Not that he had anything against him, but they had different approaches to various issues. Uh, but he quoted this comment of Rav Kook. Rav Kook had, what does this mean? Well, when I wasn't born, I could die. So I wasn't worth anything. Now that I'm born, I'm still not worth anything. What is that all about? So he said that every person in this world has a tafkid, has a mission, has an assignment. This is, this is what you are supposed to be doing with your life. This is what God expects of you. Now, often we can't figure, quite figure it out. You know, God doesn't come to us in a dream and tell us uh, what, what he wants of us. So it's a, that itself is a struggle. Sometimes we really feel, ah, I know what he wants of me. Sometimes we struggle for all of our lives to try to find. But... When he creates us, he creates us with a certain mission, a certain tafkid, 
And that tough kid depends upon the time when you're born and the place where you're born, the family that you're born into, the culture that surrounds you. That That's all part of why you're born. You're born to not... We were, none of us here was born to, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in Eastern Europe in the time of the Shtetl in 1880. I don't think I would hear that at all. So... So we weren't born then because I could die. <laughs> the, 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 the purpose that I was created for didn't exist in the shtetl of 1880 or in, uh, in, in Spain in the time of in the 13th century. Uh, it was a different time, a different place, a different language, a different culture, a different everything. Uh, I was born at a certain time in a certain place uh, for, for a reason. <laughs> to, to, to react and to grow and to affect um, the problems of that specific time. You know, so I personally, I was born in 1940 and subsequently found out that the day I was born, my cousins, the second cousins, who were back in, what is today, Ukraine, were being butchered. They were, they were in, some of them were infants and were just being smothered to death. And I was born in Brooklyn and uh, everybody had a big party and I, had a, I was a Bukhar, so I had a pigeon up and it's still... Uh, someone that had some type of, a, not a video, but some type of a camera of that event. And I was born in a certain society, a certain time of life. Personally, uh, I won't get too personal, but I've had a lifelong obsession with the Holocaust. Not because I was anywhere near it geographically, but, but because I was born in February 1940, which was the beginning of the worst, the worst catastrophe in Jewish history. And somehow that affected uh, an aspect of who I am. I often lecture about Holocaust. I think it's important. I read a lot about it, etc. So, if you were born with a certain set of tools that fit the year you were born, 1940, 1950, 1960, 1980, looking around the room, maybe in 2000, okay, and um, it, it, did I do what I was supposed to do? Did I reach my tafkid? Well, here, Erev Yom Kippur, you begin to say, now that I was born. So I was born to meet the challenges of this time that I was born. It's as if I wasn't born. Now, instead of going the way that I, God wanted me to go in this particular setting, uh, the temporal setting and physical setting, cultural setting, I didn't uh, live up to it. So it's as if I wasn't born. What was the point? You know. So that uh, is a thought of Rav Cook, which I, I, I heard, I think the first time I heard it expressed was from Rasalavechik, who dramatized it, the whole issue. But the prayer goes further. And Rav Cook has a second paragraph in which he comments on the second sentence. Okay? Before I was born, I had nothing to talk about. Now that I'm born, still not much to talk about. And then we say, we're talking to God, I stand before you like a vessel full of shame and embarrassment. I'm like a vessel. No. Rav Kook, in Yiddish is a phrase, Shtelzach. Rav Kook, there's one word in that phrase that bugs him, that bothers him. I am like a vessel full of busha uchlima, of embarrassment and shame. What's the kichli, like a vessel? 
Why not just say, I'm standing before you, burdened by feelings of shame and embarrassment because I don't live up to my uh, my tough kid, my purpose in life. What the, why did he use the metaphor of a keli, of a, of a vessel? So Rav Cook writes, because this is true in, in, uh, in Kabbalah, in, in, in Jewish mystical tradition, that the, the, the concept of a kli, of a vessel, is of a passive recipient. Uh, most kalim that we think about, pots, pans, etc., don't do anything for us. <laughs> they just take. They just take. A kli is a symbol of someone who just takes. He, you, know, you pour some water into it, and the kli doesn't do anything. If you light a fire to the kli, okay, then the kli can cook for you. But otherwise, the kli itself, the vessel itself, is, is a vessel. It's a, it's, a, it's a container. It's a recipient. It's passive. It's just taking in and not giving out. So this, uh, how Rav Kook understands that phrase, not only am I not living up to my potential, but I am like a kali. I'm like an empty vessel. In, in uh, the, the symbol, symbolism of the, of the Kabbalah, there's ore and there's kalim. There's light and there's vessels. The light fills the vessels, but the vessel is something which is filled by something which is light. So I'm like this vessel. And what's the vessel full of? It's not full of, you know, delicious soup or whatever uh, you like uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the pot or in the pan, but it's full of busho chlima. And, and this, is, this is what I am. I've not lived up to my tafkid. I'm living up to my tafkid. If I'm doing what I was created to do given the circumstances into which I was born, then I'm not a kli, I'm not a vessel. I'm an active participant. Obviously, I'll make mistakes along the way, etc. There'll be blind alleys here and there. But basically, I'm not a stationary object. I'm not a receptacle. I'm not a kli. And I'm not full of busha or klima. I'm proud of what I did. Yes, I didn't do all I should have done. Could have done this better, that better. But basically, there's nothing to be ashamed of or very little to be ashamed of. So, this is... um, the, the conclusion, of course, that um, Morris tells a story, from his story, but the conclusion of the story is that the true Baljuva, who has done some terrible things in his life, uh, when he begins to realize that he has a lot to be ashamed of, he also realizes that Ein Hadovar Tolui Elobi. It all depends upon me. Because one of the things that happens with Busha is if you want to escape these feelings of shame, well, you have a very easy defense mechanism. And that is where there's shame, and shame is making you feel bad, then blame. Blame the other person. This is an old lesson that our great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, Chava, (laughs) knew all the way back in Parshas Beratius, you know, uh, she's asked, you know, what are you doing? You ate from the tree. God said, don't eat from the tree. So what does she do? Hanocha sheshiyani. She blamed the snake. You know, Adam blames his wife. His wife blames the snake. And it's blame, blame, blame to escape the shame. The shame of having not lived up to the expectations uh, that were that you're destined to, to live up to. Once you realize, ain't hadavra totally LOB, that it, there's no one to blame. It's not my mother's fault or my grandmother's fault, not the fault of my education, not the fault of my my, my, my teacher, not the fault of my wife, my, the fault of my husband. It's my fault accepting that responsibility. 
I, w- I want to close because this whole notion of responsibility, which is very much tied up with shame. A person who really feels a sense of responsibility doesn't let himself be ashamed. Tries to When he does feel shame, he tries to overcome it and correct his behavior. That's responsibility. Responsibility is to avoid these feelings because these feelings came about through mistakes that you've made. You take responsibility for those mistakes. You own them in contemporary uh, jargon. You own your mistake. And then you, that's the way of co- coping uh, coping with shame. So I'll tell you a story. It has a lot of background to it. I'm going share it all with you. At a much earlier stage of my life, I wanted to try to see what it would be like to learn in the yeshiva in Lakewood. And those years, in the entire yeshiva, there was not quite a hundred people, hundred students. Uh, so I came for a short, uh, short benazman, not benazman, but a short zman, the post-Pesach till, till uh, I guess till, till Tishabov, till Rosh uh, a few months. And Rav Aaron Kutler, who was then alive, and the Rosh Hashiva of uh, Lakewood, that yeshiva, was away, actually in Israel, by some meeting of some sort. Uh, so the person who was a kind of assigned to, to orient me was Rav Nosen Vachtfeugel, who was a mashkiach ruchni in the yeshiva in those years. He has a son now who's considered one of the masters of, uh, of Torah and halacha. But Rav Nosen met with me. Uh, he was really a person from the old school. <laughs> Here I was, a college student, and, you know, uh, whatever I was, I was. It wasn't anything terrible. Uh, but uh, his value system, like, uh, I, I represented a piece of work that he had to do. So he told me this story, and when I heard it, I was 19, but he told me this story that I'm about to share with you. Uh, I heard a story, you know, so okay, fine. I finished with him. Everybody wanted to know what did he say, what did he say. I said, he told me some story. Many, many, many years later, really only a year or two ago, I came across this story in writing. And I remember him telling me the story, and now I said, oh, now I know what he was talking about. This is <laughs> 60, 67, 68 years later. Sometimes it takes time until it sinks in. Here's the story. Uh, the story is contained in a little safer called Leket Rishimot, a collection of uh, sketches, sketches about this man's life. Rav Nosen Vachtfeugel. So the story goes as follows. I'm not going to read it to you. I'll just tell you the story. Um, he studied in a yeshiva called Kelm in, in the old country, in Lithuania, pre-Holocaust. Chafetz Chaim was alive when this Rav Nassim was a young yeshiva bacha. Chafetz Chaim died, I think, 1935. Uh, so this could have been late 1920s, early 1930s. So he and two of his friends had the opportunity to visit the Chafetz Chaim. The Chafetz Chaim was staying in a stancia, that's a Yiddish word which means a station. In other words, he was in an inn, or he was traveling somewhere, he wasn't at home. They had this opportunity to go visit him. So first he describes how the three of them, all Bachrim, well, your age, younger, and here uh, they are with the Chafetz Chaim. There were two chairs and a sofa in the, in the room. And the Chafetz Chaim wanted all, them all to be able to sit down. 
So he started maneuvering and this and that. Finally, he put one bacher in one chair, one bacher in the other chair, and he and this Rav Nossin sat together on the sofa. As a footnote, but a very important and tragic footnote, Rav Nossin shares in this uh, little anecdote that both of those companions of his were both killed in the Holocaust. And he survived. It's a whole story about how he survived, came to America, etc. But he said... You know, they, they were trying to engage the Chafetz Chaim in some type of, like, like, like the students of Rabbi Yochum the Menzaka, you know, Borcheni, give us a blessing. So, he started to sing. Chafetz Chaim started to sing uh, a nigun, a tune. Rabbi Nosson sang that tune in the yeshiva many times, whether he sang it to me in that room when we were alone all those years ago, I don't remember. But he, he, when he would say over the story in public, he would sing that tune. So I don't know the tune, I can't sing the tune for you. But the words were, Alain, Alain. Alain in Yiddish means alone. Alain, Alain. So he was singing in a kind of a, a, a meditative chant. Alain, Alain. Meaning, you've got to do everything yourself. <laughs> you are the ultimate responsibility for yourself. Ein hadavar taloi elabi. It's all up to me. And then he said, then the Muslim said that Prophet Chaim started to shout at them that they were, I don't know how old they were, but they were Bachrim, they could have been teenagers. And he said to them in these words, in Yiddish I'll translate, Alain Steigen, Alain Arbatin. You've got to steig, you've got to develop, develop religiously, you've got to do it yourself. Alain Arbatin, you're going to work, you got to work yourself. Alain davening. When you got a daven, it's got to be your davening. You're not supposed to daven by imitating the Rebbe, the Rosh Hashiva, your neighbor, etc. It's got to be your davening. It's got to be your learning. Alain davening. Alain horavin. Horavin means working, studying deeply. It's all got to be Alain. 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 It's all got to be Alain. I reflect on this story in many ways. But one way is in the life of the Chafetz Chaim himself. The Chafetz Chaim didn't have a secretary. <laughs> the Chafetz Chaim didn't have a thousand Hasidim or a thousand Talmidim who did everything for him, etc. He did it alone. He identified his life's works alone. We don't know much about his education. Who was his rabbi? What yeshiva did he learn in, in any yeshiva, if that? He did it himself. He was the ultimate. He looked through his history as all kinds of books in every language out there, the biography of the Chafetz Chaim, he, he did it all alone. He did it all alone. And, and this is what he demands of all of us. You know, Don't depend upon the society you're in, whether it's the yeshiva of the Hasidus or this or that. Alone, alone, alone. The image I have is when I lived in Baltimore some, some years ago, so some type of illegal holiday, I don't remember which one uh, in America, and a chavrusa of mine who's passed away, Yisich uh, Baruch, and uh, myself, we were sitting, uh, yeah, day off from work or whatever, and we were sitting in this little shul, little shtibel, uh, learning. And it was getting time to mincha, and a man walks in. The man was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein had a granddaughter. Moshe Feinstein had a son-in-law who passed away very, very young. Rabbi Moshe Shiska. And uh, so his children were orphans. Now this one of these orphans, grandchildren of Rav Moshe Feinstein, 
was an adult, and she got married to a fellow uh, named, it's their first name, her name is Greenfield. What? Menachem. Anyway, she was married, and Rav Moshe Feistin came to visit her. Alright? Came to visit her. And he came down by train himself. You know, from New York to, to Baltimore. He took a taxi to her home. But came in for time, he asked her, where's the closest shul? She said, you know, two blocks down there, there's a little stable. And he walked in by himself. He walks in, and the two of us are sitting there really alone. <laughs> I think it's a bunch of fights there, what do you think? So? Can't be. You could have at least <laughs> six people in front of him, five people behind him. No, Alain, Alain, Alain. And <laughs> then the rov of that shul, Hasid uh, Shigir, a big time of Chochem, Rav Yitzchak Sternhill, comes out, and he also first sees, you know, a man, oh, that he realizes who it is, and he had the same reaction that we had, and he really took him and put him in the front seat and everything else like that. And the only part of the discussion that I remember is, uh, he said to whoever was within the earshot, Ich bin gekommen zu mein Einigel Ayesoyma. I came here to visit my granddaughter, an orphan. So I'm being a kind of the mitzvah of, uh, you know, taking care of orphans. Oh, she might be a 25-year-old woman, a mother herself, but she's still an orphan. She's my granddaughter. And the mafamir aganzat simis. All I did was come to a visit to see my granddaughter. And everybody's making this big fuss over me. Sit, sit up front, sit up there, and saying that all sincerity. So that's the kind of alein, alein, alein. Uh, and this is a very, very important lesson. There's one, uh, this is how I'll conclude, there's one, one, one ikar, of the 20 ikarim, the 20 major uh, components of tshuva that Rabbi Yonah mentions, so number 20 is to help other Jews, to help other Jews spiritually. To teach people, to teach people Torah. This is a a a derech hatshuva. Part of tshuva is this kind of fits in with this alein alein alein. We all have to have a sense, and this is really what this school represents. We're not just here to perfect ourselves. We're here to reach out to other people, to spread the word of Torah, to teach other people. That's what we're all here about. And this, certainly in our time, our generation, this is the single most important task that every Jew has. To reach out to other Jews. To reach out to other Jews. But for the Rabbi Yonah, I can find a quote. Uh, this is... I have so many places to look for quotes, I can't find the one I'm looking for. Here it is. Ha'ikar ho'esrim. The 20th ikar. Final, the culmination is, Lahashiv rabim me'avon ka'asher tasik yado. To bring other people away from sin, to the extent that you can. Shenemar, shuvu pasukin yecheskel veheshivu mikol pishechem. The madnu kizeh meyikore hatshuva. This is one of the basics of tshuva to help other people find their way. And this is this is really what this uh, yeshiva, uh, entire institution represents. Uh, it's it's an important uh, component of tshuva. Tshuva is not only about alein alein to do better oneself. Obviously, that's the big piece of it. But piece of it also was not to forget the other guy or the other gal. Piece, part of tshuva, part of your personal tshuva is outreach. 
in, in some form or another to the extent that uh, that you're c- capable of doing so. So I want to wish you all a year without too much shame and embarrassment. <laughs> and if there is any same shame and embarrassment, then do what you have to do to correct it and make sure that uh, throughout the rest of the year we have all the brachos uh, that we pray for and that we hope we deserve. And we should have all the Gemar Chasim Tova and a Tshuva Shlema, a Rafua Shlema, and a Gula Shlema of Meru Yomeinu.